Well, it's good to be with you, back with you this morning. And this this passage this morning is a heavier one. I kind of want to put um, that on your radar right up front. Uh, this is a a pretty severe warning from Scripture, and I just want to dive right in. But before I do, I want to pray. I want to seek the Lord um, and seek His blessing as we um, sort of look into Hebrews chapter ten again. This morning, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the word of God and its power. Lord, I pray that this message this morning would go out in our congregation and that it would be um, perhaps uh, multiplied even through radio and through media in a way that stirs people where they would know um, where they are or where they are not spiritually. This is a serious text, and God, I pray that you would um, lift our hearts as we see you in all of your glory, both as a God of judgment and justice and a God of grace and mercy. We thank you for this time in your text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So turn in your Bibles again to Hebrews 10 and begin looking with me at verse 26. We're going to look at um, this section as a whole, but it's really going to break into two sermons. The first sermon today is about people who are forgetting. And next week will be about people who need to be remembering. That's what we're talking about. People who are in church and are forgetting And people who are in church who need to be remembering, forgetting and remembering. You know, habits are formed almost by accident. The old, or I don't know if it's old, it's kind of the trendy way to say things regarding habits is that it takes 21 days to form a habit. And then someone said, if all you want to do is drink a glass of water after breakfast, it takes 21 days to form a habit. Habits, especially big habits, take a long time, sometimes a lifetime to form. There are good habits that are formed in your lifetime and then bad ones. And the bad ones are easier to form because you're almost doing it involuntarily. You just begin to do things without thinking. You forget to do the right thing, and then you start doing the wrong thing. And before you know it, a habit forms a character and a lifestyle. Well, that's what we're talking about from Hebrews. We're talking about the warning of drifting into autopilot. We are drifting away from Christ. And in particular, as we learned last week, the warnings in Hebrews are corporate I mean, yeah, they are applied to you individually and personally, but we're talking about church life and in particular, how going to church or not going to church are habits. There's the habit of going to church and there's the habit of drifting away from church and suddenly not going to church very often or at all. And this might not sound like a big deal on the face of things, but where you go to church and whether you go to church regularly is telling us about each other, is it not? It says a lot about where we are in terms of our walk with the Lord. Do we want to be around people who love the Lord or do we want to not be around people who love the Lord? 
This is what Hebrews is talking about. And Hebrews uses the word drifting a couple times. It's the idea of slowly just letting yourself go. I remember being in church from my earliest days. I I was sort of born and, and put into church, it felt like. I don't have any recollection of not going to church. It would be very awkward for me to suddenly not be in church because church has just always been part of my life and it was part of my parents' life and is still part of my parents' lives. And and I remember as one of my earliest memories being in the church nursery, you know, just sort of being there. And, and we used to have these these cribs that were on the walls. Who remembers those cribs in any church memory, right? Well, these cribs were stacked up so we could all be stacked up and sort of put behind bars. The bars would be thrown up when we'd be put in and the bars would drop down. And the only sort of spiritual thing that I can see with that experience was maybe it was introducing me early to prison ministry. I'm not sure. But I just think that if I wasn't going to church, something would be wrong. But I don't want to imagine that I am beyond the need for a warning like this in the text because to drift away from church is a symptom. That's the goal is not to correct the symptom. The goal is to correct the problem beneath the problem, which is if you're drifting away from Christ, then suddenly you don't want to be around God's people anymore. Suddenly you don't want to be under God's word anymore. Suddenly singing doesn't matter anymore. Corporate singing, relationships in church are part of the fruit of wanting Jesus. And so Hebrews 10 is a spelunking expedition. We're going into the dark cave of the heart to find out what's going wrong when someone is drifting away from Christ and drifting from church. I talked about at the beginning where this is the difference between remembering and forgetting or forgetting and remembering. The first section is about people who are forgetting. When you're forgetting, you're drifting. When you're remembering gospel truths, when you're remembering your testimony, when you're remembering Jesus, then you're persevering. Hebrews is about running the marathon to the finish line, all the way to heaven. When you're remembering, you're running. When you're forgetting, you're just drifting. And that's what we're talking about in our text. This is drifting. And as a principle and as a point that you could write down, it's this. Drifting is the choice, and I will add this, the moral spiritual choice to ignore God. Drifting is the moral and spiritual choice to ignore God. Specifically, in this text, to ignore God's wrath in the end for those who drift away into apostasy. Drifting is ignoring who God is. And it's if you drift all the way away to where you're not identified with Christ at all, but you're just identified with the world, your flesh, and your sin. If you drift to that point, then you have completely ignored judgment day. You're ignoring the wrath of God. This is a vision of who God is and who God will be to you in the end if you are apostate. To apostatize, by the way, is, doesn't mean that you lost your salvation. We believe that once you are a Christian, you are always a Christian. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. No one can take you from the Father's hand. We've talked about that already even this morning. 
We know that you are sealed to the day of redemption. But to apostatize is the warning of people who think that they are saved. And this text is talking to people who think that they are saved. But they are not saved. They think that they're fine. They're in church. They think that they're okay. This is a we us text. We think we're fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I have my fire insurance policy right here. It's signed up. I know when I pray to prayer. This text is to shake you up to go. I don't know if I'm saved because I've drifted away in my heart or in my actions. I'm examining myself to see where I'm at to apostatize. It's a person who goes, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I'm in the boat. I'm going down the river, going the wrong way. I'm headed to the falls. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And then you wake up one day in eternal hell. That's what this message is all about. That's what Hebrews is talking about. This is one of the most severe paragraphs I've read in scripture. So point one, forgetting what forgetting looks like verses 26 to 31. What does it look like to forget? We're talking in terms of symptoms or manifestations of forgetting. First of all, it's willfully sinning, willfully sinning. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The verse right before is speaking of how we're supposed to, verse 24, stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together. We're supposed to come together. We're supposed to remind each other, remind each other, hey, stay in church. Keep living a life for Christ. Don't neglect meeting together. It's the habit of some, but we're encouraging each other because Jesus is going to come back one day. If you skip down to verse 32, just to get some brackets on our paragraph, it says, but recall the former days. But remember, that's where we're going next week. Remember, remember, remember. What are you supposed to encourage each other about to keep each other persevering and running the race together? That's The positive side, but negatively, if you're ignoring all of that encouragement, you're just going, I'm going to sin deliberately. This is the heart of an apostate. Not talking about the murderer or the adulterer who's outside the church. We're not talking about people who are blatantly sinning in worldly lasciviousness where it's obvious. We're talking about the church goer who goes, you know what? I'm here. I'm not listening. And I'm going to sin deliberately. That's what an apostate looks like encouragement inoculates this disease of drifting. It's stirring. It's reminding. It's telling people Jesus is coming. And when he comes, you don't want to be outside of his family. Verse 26 is talking about the heart condition. I heard it said one time that no one has a heart attack by eating one cheeseburger. Praise God for that, right? It's the 10,000th cheeseburger that you ate that you just didn't even think about in the context of your health. That's what flips the switch. Person who is sinning deliberately is not sinning out of ignorance. Leviticus chapters 4 and 5 and Numbers 15, it talks about the distinction between people who are in the congregation 
They're in the covenant community, the old covenant, and they're sinning in ways where they just didn't know that they were doing wrong. And I read that this morning and there's, there's Levitical law where you got to take care of those sins where you were caught up short and you just didn't know better. And you, you're educated in that. You got to give your sacrifice and make things right and do that there. That's also for the priest as well. It's for people who are leaders there's a sin of ignorance and those are serious. But then in numbers chapter 15, verse 30, it says, if anyone does anything with a high hand, that person shall be cut off. Why? Because he's despised the word. It's when you know better and you raise up in pride at such a level of arrogance and you say, I am going to do it anyway. Deliberate disobedience, sinful, it's premeditation. It's deserving of severe punishment. I remember being a young teenager, a young, young teenager, and I grew up on the East Coast and used to surf waves, and they were small waves, so they were pretty safe. But my parents were worried about me when I was especially 12, 13, because I really loved to do it. And then when hurricanes would come, the waves would get bigger. And my parents had said, whatever you do, don't go with a friend surfing unless an adult is there, unless you have adult supervision. Yes, sir. Got it. Okay. The waves kicked up and I had a ride to the beach, went there, had my surfboard, had my friend with his surfboard and his mom did not have the same rule that my parents had. She left and left us there and away we went. Well, the moms talked. And I was standing in the garage and I'm standing there and the the neighbor mom is there and she says, you know what? Your mom just talked to me and she said that you weren't supposed to go without a parent being there. My friend who was not under that same law as I was, that same principle, mockingly looked at me at that moment and said, you just, my friend, committed direct disobedience. And I thought, I am cooked And I was, I was in trouble for that. I knew that my punishment would be severe. This is the warning that we're talking about. Sinning deliberately, look at the phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Everywhere in the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, where it says receiving the knowledge of the truth, that speaks of someone who is saved, specifically the knowledge that's for the elect. This is knowing Christ personally, knowledge. So how is this someone who is living that contradictory life? Well, the, the, the scripture is intentionally trying to shock us. This is a person who looks like they've received the knowledge of the truth. You would think that they were fine. You would think that they were spiritually in touch with the Lord and they're sinning deliberately. They look clearly regenerate, but... Their contradictory life on the inside is finding them out. They are a catch-22. People who are living in this way, by the way, are riddled with guilt often. They're, They're upset often. They're a part of church because they think it's the right thing to do. But they're living a lie where they're sinning deliberately. And they want to be caught. They want to be found out. They need some atonement, but they're not willing to give up their sin to follow Christ. They want help, but they don't want it all the way. Look at the next phrase in verse 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean? 
I mean, that is some really dangerous language. But this is a person who is anesthetized. It's like anesthesia. They are numb to the gospel. They're numb to the cross. They've heard it. They've heard it. And they've heard it, but they don't want it anymore. It's like a person in the Old Testament who would be, if you see the phrase here, there no longer remains a sacrifice. It's like a person running around the Old Testament camp in the covenant community looking for a lamb to atone for his or her sins and can't find one anymore. It's not working anymore. What are we saying? The emphasis here is not on the sufficiency of the cross. And I want to be clear with that. The cross is sufficient to save everyone who will believe. Always. It's just someone inside Christian community can come to a place where they're sinning so deliberately and so often and so offensively to Christ that they no longer want the cross of Christ. They no longer want the atonement to save them. It's not a sufficiency question. It's a functionality question. It's someone who has actively hardened their heart so hard that they're against grace and they're against the cross. So the cross will not have an effect on them anymore. This comes from an exposure to the light. And I've said that from Hebrews, it's dangerous to hear the word of God. If you're not receiving it, it's dangerous It's harmful. It will harden you. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, right? It's a weird effect. I mean, the sun in Alaska is going away and we long for vitamin D, do we not? Have you taken your vitamin D gummies today, right? I mean, that, that's, this is where we live. Sun is good for us, but overexposure to the sun can kill you, right? It's that same dynamic when you're close to the things of God, to the power of God, to the word of God, and you reject and you reject, not just mentally. This is not just mental rejection. This is active rejection. I'm going to high fistedly sin against the message, the person and the work of Christ over and over. And I do it in such a way that I'm so hardened to the gospel that it's rendering ineffectual back to me. That's how severe and dangerous this warning is. It's Hebrews 6, 4 all over again. It's impossible to renew people to restore someone to repentance. Verse 6, since they are crucifying again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's so offensive that God at a certain point, even in this lifetime, will let certain people go. Have your attention yet? I hope the word does. I hope the word does because these are messages that don't often come out of preachers' mouths. They're difficult. It's the rocky soil. It's not the good soil. Remember the four soils? Well, there's rocky soil. It looks good. It pops up. It looks joyful. It looks happy, but there's no root. It's, there's a rocky foundation, so the roots can't penetrate. There's no life there. It looked okay, but it's not. They're claiming Christ while repudiating Christ, repudiating him with a contradictory life. Well, that's the first manifestation. The second one is wallowing in self-pity, wallowing self-pity. The diagnosis of self-pity is built on verse 27, these phrases. It's a state of heart where someone is afraid of judgment. 
27, it says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So this is a person who's sinning deliberately. Verse 26, they know the truth. They've received the knowledge of the truth on a meaningful level, but they've hardened their hearts to the sacrifice of sins, the sacrifice of sin from the cross. And now they're in this state of fear. They have a state of fear. It's phobos. Verse 27, it's repeated again in verse 31. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's, they're, in, they're, they're just ensconced in fear because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. This is the catch 22. I believe in heaven. I believe in hell. I believe in the cross. I believe that Jesus was here, but I don't want any of that. I want this, not him. Do you see the difference? And when you're in that wash cycle in your heart, it creates cowardice and fear. Not pride. I mean, not humility, but pride. It's being caught between two worlds. You know the right path, but you're going to take the wrong path and you're pitiful and you're pitiable. This is demon faith of James 2.19. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is the superficial notional belief where you just have head knowledge, but your heart's not changed. A demon's heart is not going to change. They're forever condemned. And so they know the truth. They knew who Jesus was, right? They knew him. On this earth, they know him, they understand things about him, but they don't want him. They're not going to follow him. They're just going to be shuddering in fear of him. That's the heart situation. That's the heart state of a person who's in this situation. It's guilt leading to, watch this, remorse, but not repentance, Guilt does not always lead to a godly sorrow, but 2 Corinthians 7, there's also a worldly sorrow. It's the, I'm so sad that I've gotten caught. I'm so sad for the repercussions of what I've done. I'm so sad for what this is doing in other people's lives, but it's not saving sadness. It's the tears of Judas Iscariot. Remember his story. It's with Christ. No one was exposed to Christ like Judas Iscariot and the 12. He was with Christ, with his teachings. Jesus called Judas his friend by quoting a psalm that he fulfilled prophetically. Matthew 27, 3 through 8, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned... This is after he had sold Jesus out to the Roman guard. It says Judas changed his mind. Now he's not repenting and being saved, but he's feeling really bad for what he's done. He's changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned. Listen to this confession. This is the confession of somebody in church. Okay. Judas Iscariot's. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the 30 piece, or the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. It says in verse 27, back, 7, back to Hebrews 10, that a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is hell, fire. This is someone looking in the mirror saying, I'm living a lie and I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of hell. 
I'm so afraid of hell and its eternal consequences that I'm going to let myself go into depression and despondency. I'm going to be paralyzed in fear. This is no way to live. This is no place to be as a Christian or as a professing Christian. I'm hoping to shake you out of this if this is where you are this morning. I was reminded of a classic story. It's the Pilgrim's Progress where you have the main protagonist is Christian. And he's been warned in his homeland that he needs to leave this dangerous place and go on a specific journey to heaven, which is depicted as the celestial city. All of this was written by John Bunyan, by the way. It's an allegory. It's, it's word pictures to teach truth. And he wrote it, and it, it's, it's written for you know children but all the way through adults. I mean, it's a very powerful, powerful story that he wrote in a bed in Bedfordshire. It was a Bedfordshire prison because he was put in there as a preacher of the word of God who wouldn't, who defied the government who was trying to shut him down. And the Lord put him in prison, I think, to write this story. And so Christian, uh, who's the protagonist, the hero of the story. He basically is trying to win people to Christ at this point. He's witnessing to obstinate. He's witnessing to this man pliable that he found on the road. And he's got a burden on his back. And the burden is symbolic of all of his sins. Even though he's believing and he's on the path, he still hasn't encountered the cross in a way that's meaningful where he can say, I'm letting go of my guilt. So he's weighed down by that, but he's witnessing And it says, here, therefore, oh, Christian is carrying his rucksack, representing the guilt. And here, therefore, they, Christian and Pliable, because Pliable went with him. Pliable's excited about the celestial city. Pliable's asking questions about this. It says they wallowed for a time because they, they actually fell into what's called the slough of despond. Now, slough or slough, however you want to say that, that's a bog, it's, it's, it's a pit. And so they're walking along, Pliable's talkatively saying, what about the celestial city? They're not paying attention and they fall into the bog. So they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed, it's Old English, bedaubed by, with the dirt. And Christian, because of the burden on his back, began to sink in the mire. Pliable said this, then said Pliable, ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Christian said, I don't know. And at that, Pliable began to be offended. And he angrily said to his fellow, is this the happiness that you told me about all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect twixt this and our journey's end? If I get out again with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on the side of the slough, which is next to his own house. So he went away and Christian saw him no more. This is the narrator talking. Wherefore, Christian was left to tumble in the slough of despond alone, but still he endeavored to struggle to that side of the slough that was the farthest from his own house and next to the wicket gate which represents going on the narrow road, which he did, but he could not get out because of the burden that was on his back. But I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Help. And he asked him, 
what he did there. Sir, said Christian, I was bidden to go this way by a man called Evangelist who directed me also to yonder gate that I might escape the wrath to come. And as I was going, I fell in there. This is help. But why did you not look for the steps? Fear followed me so hard, as Christian said, that I fled the next way and fell in. Help speaks and he says, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he drew him out and set him upon some ground and bade him to go on his way. This is just, it's just a picture of the struggle that people are going through. You have someone who seems fine, who gets into the struggle. He says, you know what? If I can get out of this, I'm going back home. Another person that's in the mire and he's just wrestling with his own sin. He's dealing with which way he's going to go. And then help comes and gets him out and he's back on the path. The outcome of our Christian life is determined by our response to guilt often. Sin breeds guilt and fear. And the cross can get us out. But the third manifestation here of this kind of heart that's forgetting, a person who's forgetting who God is, forgetting about wrath, not remembering, this person blasphemes the cross. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has, he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. It's blaspheming the cross. It's uh, verse 28 argues from the lesser to the greater, from obscurity to clarity. Uh, A lot back in the Old Testament, Old Covenant community was not known about the afterlife. And I think that's the author's point here. He's saying there's punishment and there was punishment on a physical level under the Old Covenant, the law of Moses. If somebody set aside the law and again, sinned overtly, sinned deliberately, They would die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a reference to Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy 17, he he speaks of a situation in the law, Moses did, where he said, you shall not offer a sacrifice to the Lord, your God, an ox or a sheep in which there's a blemish or a defect whatsoever. This would be an abomination. But then he talks about a deeper abomination, not something that you do unintentionally, but intentional sin, intentionally worshiping idols. He says, if there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord, your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord in transgressing the covenants. What is it? Verse three, they're serving other gods and worshiping them, the sun, the moon, the stars, all this I've forbidden. He says, I've told you this. And if you see this or hear of this, inquire diligently. And if it's true that this abomination is happening, verse five, then you shall bring 
out to your gates, that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidences of two or three witnesses. This is to be confirmed. And ultimately, the person who's confirming this as a witness is to be the first stone thrower. This person dies without mercy. This is capital punishment. There's no second chances. But guess what? The afterlife in the Old Testament or the netherworld is not really part of this discussion. It's just talking about if you're in the covenant community and a Jew during that time would have desperately wanted to stay inside that covenant community for safety, physical safety, for governmental reasons, for, to raise their family there, to be okay, to know the true God. But if someone defies that situation and says, I'm going after other gods, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang it up even though I know the truth, I'm going to do this, then they would be killed. But verse 29, look at this. It says this, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the son of God? How can this be worse punishment than that? You say, I mean, we're not in that situation where someone's in this community is going to kill us if they see us go after other gods. How is this worse? Well, we're talking not in the physical, we're talking in the spiritual realm. It's someone who knows about Jesus, knows the truth, and is openly rejecting it. It's the greater exposure to more truth and yet still rejecting. It's literally someone who's trampling the son of God. What does that mean? Trampling underfoot the son of God. This is stomping the name of Christ in front of people. It's literally saying, Jesus, I don't care about you anymore. You know the truth. You've been affected by the truth superficially, but you're just grinding it into the dirt. You're saying the blood of Jesus is meaningless. You've profaned the blood of the covenant. Do you see that in verse 29? You profane it. You literally say it's meaningless. It's just like any other blood. So this points out to me that people can claim Jesus with their words but with their heart reject Jesus. There's no prayer that's prayed at a moment that just saves you automatically. Genuine conversion comes from genuine faith and genuine faith will not stomp the name of Jesus like this. You won't trample Jesus underfoot. You might stumble for a time. You might stray. You might be in the the bog with Christian, with the sin burden on your back where you're wrestling hard. But you're not going to ultimately run away and spurn it and profane it and say, I'm going to live however I want to live. You say, I'm never going to do that. Well, let's be careful. Any one of us could be susceptible to drifting away. The point of this text is to be warned against that. Or if you are drifting, to be awakened while you're in the bog so you can be lifted out. That's what we're talking about. It literally says that this is the blood, look at this, by which, the end of verse 9, by which he was sanctified. What does that mean? Anyone who is sanctified by the blood of Jesus is a Christian. So this has to be taken hypothetically. It's someone who is superficially identified as being sanctified. Someone who is associated with the blood of Christ. 
Yes, I'm a churchgoer. Yes, I'm a part of Anchorage Grace Church. Or yes, I'm this denomination or that denomination. The blood of Jesus is what I'm trusting in. But their life is a complete contradiction to that. And so they're not truly washed and truly sanctified. So much so that verse 29 says they have outraged the spirit of grace. They've insulted God. They've outraged the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has moved towards a person, has offered himself to that person, and that person has pushed back and rejected him. It's what the Pharisees did, right? Jesus came, and when he came, he brought the kingdom, he brought the miracles, he brought, he cast out demons, he rose people from death, he made the blind to see, the deaf to hear. Matthew 12, 24 through 32, the Pharisees, they said, it is only by Beelzebul that the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. He knew that they were at a point of no return. And then in verse 28, he says, he says, I do this by the spirit of God. That's how I cast out demons. And if that's true, verse 28, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's kingdom accountability here. This is the kind of accountability that is dangerous. If you reject it, Jesus was in front of them. Miracle power was happening. The blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, demons were being cast out. And they're going, oh, well, that's got to be the devil's power. That can't be Jesus, the Messiah. This can't be the Messiah. So their hardness of heart ultimately drew Jesus to say this. It says, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you can say something blasphemous and be forgiven. You can sin any sin and be forgiven. But this is talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit as a category where someone's heart goes to a point of rejecting Christ where God lets that person go and they will no longer be forgiven. Verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. He's saying, look, you can even say horrible things against me right now and you will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Blasphemy is not something that's just a trap door where you're just going to drop straight into hell. It's a process of blaspheming and blaspheming and rejecting and rejecting and hardening yourself where you're not going to be rescued. It's apostasy. It's Judas apostasy. He received maximum light. Psalm 41, 9, Jesus quoting that said, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He quoted that in John 13, 18, Matthew 26, 24. It would have been better for that man not to have been born. John 17, 12. I haven't lost any of them. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Defecting is a church goer. It's someone who is defecting from God, who is outraging the Holy Spirit. 
Hell's going to be filled with people, even people on degrees and different levels where there is, verse 29, a worse punishment in hell for people who have maximized light. Luke 12, 47 and 48 speaks of different levels of beatings that are represented in hell. There's a lighter beating and a more severe beating for the disciple that knew the master's will and still rejected it. It's a reprehensible condition to find yourself in. How serious is a message like this one? It's so serious to take this to heart, to realize that you do not want to be an apostate. You don't want to be someone who's weeping and gnashing teeth. I heard R.C. Sproul talk about weeping and gnashing being like two categories in hell. The gnashing of teeth being those who are angry that they're there. Why am I there? Why am I here? I never really got a fair shake in this life and I don't deserve to be here. Well, they're confused. But then you have those who are weeping, who are going, I know exactly why I'm here. I know exactly why I'm here. I rejected Jesus. I rejected the clear truth. I rejected the clear gospel. I had every chance in the world to believe and give my full life to Christ and reject it. And now I cry forever. Tell. If anyone says that the God of the Old Testament is less severe than Jesus of the New Testament, they're not reading their Bibles. They don't understand. Things go a lot more deep in the New Testament and severe as we understand eternal hell with great clarity. Well, lastly, the final manifestation is ignoring God's recompense, willfully sinning, wallowing in self-pity, blaspheming the cross and ignoring God's recompense, ignoring what God's gonna pay us for pay us back for our sins. It's someone who's straying and ignoring the future, ignoring God's future payment against us. Our sins will be transacted. Judgment will be exacted. An unrepented sin, it offends God. In this life, in the final day, you're ultimately either going to be received into heaven or judged as an apostate. At the end, that's what it's gonna be. There's the sheep and the goats. There's two directions. There's a narrow road and the wide road. There are those who are for Christ and those who are are against Christ. There are those who are the wheat and those who are the tares. There are the believers and there are the apostates. There are teachers and there are false teachers. There are angels and there are demons. There is Christ and then there is mystery Babylon, false antichrist. There is heaven and there is hell. And Jesus is the Lord of both of them. We need to understand what's at stake. Ananias and Sapphira, I don't know where where they ended up, but they conspired together and lied to the Holy Spirit. And they were met with judgment right on the spot. Verse 30 is... The author quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Vengeance is mine. Deuteronomy, it means second law. Moses wrote at the end of the second law, right before the children of Israel who had received, you know, the first writing of the law. Then they wandered in the wilderness. That first generation wandered in the wilderness and rejected God's loving care, rejected mercy. They rejected all that God was doing for them and they spurned the Lord and they fell dead in the wilderness. 
This judgment is a judgment of apostasy. They were at a place in the wilderness, and a lot of people don't talk about this, but Deuteronomy 32 is Moses giving a prophecy and a poetry and poetry in a song at the end of this last writing of the law. Moses is not going to go in the promised land, but he's going to go to heaven and he's sending the second generation in. They're going to cross Jordan. It's going to be put up as a heap and Joshua is going to lead the way. They're going and he sends them with a song and his song is to warn them from being apostates. There's a verse here. These verses are actually the verses from Deuteronomy, I'm going to, from Deuteronomy 32 that Jonathan Edwards was using when he wrote the, when he wrote the uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. They were going after demons, that first generation was, they were sacrificing to demons. And Moses said that were no gods, Deuteronomy 32, 17, Deuteronomy 32, 18. Listen to this. You were mindful. He's talking about the old first generation. You were mindful of the rock, capital R, O-C-K. You were, you were mindful of God. You used to remember God that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Remember, it's remembering or forgetting. You forgot, forgot. This is what the church is warned not to do, not to spurn the Lord, Deuteronomy 32, 19. Moses, he, he brings things to a crescendo. Verses 34 to 35 in Deuteronomy 32. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense, payment for the time when their foot shall slip. This is exactly what Edwards used for sinners in the hands of angry God. Said for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Remember the the artistry of that sermon is one where it was like God is holding someone on a thin spider web between the gaping hole of eternity, where they could fall in suddenly. This is the thin layer that people trust in and believe that they're fine in, but they're really not. Remember in the great awakening, that was the colonial period where revival was sweeping through um, the colonies, the 13 colonies that became our country. And then um, through Britain as well. And you had Edwards who was preaching and you had John George Whitfield who was preaching and John Wesley was preaching. All these preachers were preaching and Edwards was preaching sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God in Northampton, Massachusetts. And it was to a congregation. It was a congregational church in the Northeast. He was a part of a couple of them. I went to this church. I was on the front steps one time and I witnessed to a homeless man on the steps and said, do you realize what preaching took place here? He was like, I don't really care. <laughs> but I cared because Edwards is one of my heroes and he was preaching there, but he was preaching in his grandfather's church. Solomon Stoddard was his grandpa who was the preacher before him and mentored him. And he took the reins, but his grandfather had failed because he had fallen prey to something called the halfway covenant. And it was a way to try to keep people in church and keep people right with God through baptism. So he baptized these parents and then the grandkids or, or the, their kids came up and they said, well, baptize us too. And there was this kind of negotiating. We realize your parents aren't believers and you might not be believers, but you're under a halfway covenant. So we're going to baptize you. Well, Edwards had had enough. And when people pursued the Lord's table to participate in the Lord's supper, he barred the Lord's table and just said, I can't have you participate in this. This is sacrilegious and wrong. And he was fired for it. 
He was fired for it. And then he went to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I visited there too. And he took up a mission to the Mohican Indians. And that's where he ended um, his preaching ministry before he came, became the president of Princeton. Kent Hughes said Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. Verse 31, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. Literally, it's terrifying to fall into the power of another. Just imagine yourself for a second free falling into the power of God. This volcano of eternal fire against you. Because you've rejected him. Hopefully this is waking you up. If you're not already spiritually awake. You want to be caught up short. You want to be the prodigal son. Who's standing over the swine pods. And going I'm I'm getting ready to eat food. That's forbidden for me ethnically. To eat in the worst possible conditions. I'm coming to myself. That's what Luke 15 says. He says he came to himself. And went back to his father. His father ran and met him there. And embraced him right? That's what we want. We want to run towards God. Running towards wrath is forgetting God. Running towards grace is remembering God. Thinking lightly of hell makes you think lightly of the cross. Thinking heavily about hell makes you look at the cross and say, I want the cross. I want grace. So we're going to talk about all next week because The next paragraph is about remembering, remembering God, remembering his grace.